Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing with the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We know the election result. The election for the new common speaker, that is. We definitely wouldn't dare to predict the general election result, especially after a bumpy start to the campaign where some fell at the very first hurdle. That would be a goodbye to Tom Watson, stepping down as deputy Labour leader, to be a fitness trainer, he tells us. And let's assume we're going to hear less of Jacob Rees-Mogg, at least on the airwaves, after his musings about whether Grenfell victims lacked common sense. But we can make sense of how the government keeps on governing, or at least tries to, as ministers head off around the country in search of votes. This week we also speak to Ollie Grender, a Lib Dem peer, and advisor to party leader Joe Swinson. And we'll take an in-depth look at what Brexit might mean for the distribution of power in the United Kingdom. That's for devolution, power sharing, and more in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, maybe England too. This week I'm joined in the studio by Joe Owen... Hannah White, and joining us for the first time, Alice Lilly, who runs Parliamentary Monitor, where we take a data-driven look at how Parliament works. Hi, Alice. Hello. We're going to talk about the new Speaker of the House of Commons later, but apparently Twitter has been calling you and uh, your team cool nerds. Is that fair? I think one part of that might be more fair than the other. <laughs> I will not say which part it is. Um, my husband, I know, has decided that I'm beyond saving. Uh, this week I got stuck on a bus during the third round of the Speaker election, and without even having to ask him, my husband sent me the detailed results of what va- uh, votes each candidate got, and even thought to mention the fact that there were two spoilt ballots. Uh, that was really good of him, and that was pretty late. That was pretty late at night, then. Yeah. Yes, it was. So he's just accepted that's that's my life now. Yeah. Joe Owen runs our Brexit program. Hi, Joe. Hello. Joe, last week you predicted a week without a big Brexit vote and you were right because Parliament has risen. In fact, when you walk past College Green and you see all those bare bits of turf where all the cameras are, are you getting withdrawal symptoms? I'd definitely say it's more honeymoon period than cold turkey. I'm quite enjoying it, actually. Um, (laughs) But we were saying that the week seems to go quite a lot quicker without Brexit in Parliament because there's no late sittings and uh, waking up to work out what the hell's going on with amendments and stuff. So, yeah, really enjoying it. None of of that media coverage of what is Parliament going to do right now? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I mean, I'm sure we'll get uh, get withdrawal symptoms by the end. Um, The Brexit team needs to find another way to get its exercise rather than running backwards and forwards to College Green. Yeah, exactly. Which we're we're a standard. Well, I I make it 22 minutes from (laughs) from College Green. I'm sure other people can do it more quickly. That's quite a good timing. (laughs) Hannah, you're our constitutional savant. I think that's what the BBC called you this week you're overseeing all our parliamentary work. Did this feel like the end of an era when these MPs finally got up and went? It is increasingly feeling like that, particularly, and we're going to talk about this later, I think, with the number of MPs who are now announcing that they're not going to stand again. Um, And particularly, uh, you know, some surprises there. You mentioned Tom Watson um, and and other people who you might have thought were relatively at the start of their parliamentary careers. But it's been some of the biggest names as well, hasn't it? As well as some of those who were really, really pleased to have been elected MPs the the last time. Exactly. And, you know, pretty unusual to have a serving cabinet minister, Nicky Morgan, decide that she's not going to run again. And of course, we've seen the end of John Burko as Speaker. Are you going to miss him? I look forward to seeing what the, the new speaker has in store for us. No one could have faulted John Burko on his theatrical sense. We'll come back to all that later. MPs have now left Westminster and they are fanning out across the country and the parties are trying to fit their announcements into a rigid grid. And this was supposed to be the week of big announcements about public spending on all sides, although it hasn't gone entirely to plan. What, Just briefly, what do you all make of the first few days? 
we certainly have seen a lot of spending announcements and this really is a radical departure from from where we've been in, in previous elections and I think you know it's um, the whole fire hose of money being directed towards public services from both Labour and Conservatives and the Greens you know the Greens have, have, have committed you know that they would spend 100 billion I think you know every year on, on green causes so you know the question is you know would this is this sensible is this just going to pile up a mountain of debt for the country or is it going to deliver a whole lot of new infrastructure a whole lot of improved services which are actually going to drive the growth and the improvements in productivity that politicians have long wanted to see. But do you think anyone's actually noticed any of these announcements? Because Mm. if you kind of step back, the main standout points are all kind of gaffes or kind of um, negative connotations for different parties. So obviously you mentioned Brom in the the Jacob Rees-Mogg comments that seemed to roll on and then there was Ian Austin coming out very strongly against the Labour Party saying so don't vote. vote for Jeremy Corbyn, yeah, vote exactly. for Boris Johnson that, 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 that is a new thing in a campaign yeah. But exactly. I, think, I think these are probably more um, notable to the likes of us sitting in the Westminster bubble and actually the things that people who are now considering how to cast their vote, whether to, you know, to prioritise their sort of Brexit identity or their party identity or their personal concerns, they are going to be more interested I think in the, in the substantive uh, policy proposals coming out and than the, the, the yeah. Westminster kind of um, gossip. Uh, gossip. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to hear a lot more about those in the, in the, in the coming weeks. So I don't know, Joe, in, in answer to your question, whether people, you know, look uh, to all these, you know, these numbers and the, the Tories have said that they're much more constrained than Labour um, by a factor of, of, of two or three on their spending plans. But um, some of the, the more practical questions have started landing, I think, about whether there are actually enough projects in Britain um, to spend all this money on yeah. if you uh, shovel ready is the bit, the bit of jargon but whether you know we can all point to things that look broken about about Britain but whether there are actually projects right there to take these vast sums of money 150 billion Labour is talking about in, in, in the coming years you're right. I mean, you see these eye-watering numbers and how you actually turn those into practical things that people notice rather than big numbers that get thrown around on um, the front of papers during an election campaign will be uh, obviously a big, big question. But it still does feel like early days. We haven't had the manifestos yet and we're still seeing a bit of manoeuvring. We heard this talking about electoral pact. Yeah, so we saw this week, obviously, the the, the Remain Alliance, um, which I think they were already kind of called the Remain Alliance in Parliament, weren't they? But um, uh, formalising as an electoral pact um, for running of about 60 seats. Although I saw the BBC did some analysis which said that actually last time round, those electoral pacts wouldn't have made any difference to any of the outcomes in any, any of those seats. So it might be, you know, um, it sounds good. It sounds like, con- you know, sort of consistency of purpose from the from the remain focused parties but whether it will actually have a different make a difference to the outcome I'm not sure and we've also had a, a real row I think about whether the uh, civil service can be used to produce costings and the government uh, was uh, blocked by the cabinet secretary the senior civil servant from putting out costings that the treasury had done of opposition uh, of opposition plans I mean Hannah who's right in this uh, both sides immediately went indignantly on the airways to say that they were completely right leaving the cabinet secretary in the middle I think there is no right or wrong on this. The fact is there is guidance. Uh, The guidance is there to, uh, and I quote, avoid any criticism of an improper use of official resources. So that's why the government isn't supposed to put out costings during the formal campaign process. But it's absolutely fine for the government to use the civil service to produce 
costings of opposition policies when we're not in a formal campaign process. What was controversial was Mark Sedwell stopped this publication a few hours Mark before... Mark Sedwell was the Cabinet Secretary. Yeah, he did that a few hours before the formal campaign started. And so technically it would have been OK, but I think his interpretation was this is you know against the spirit of the guidelines and there is a risk to civil service impartiality and therefore he said it wasn't something that the government could do. And Alice, just so we're completely clear, when does the election campaign actually begin? So the, the pre-election restrictions came into force the moment that Parliament was dissolved. So that was at one minute past midnight on Wednesday. Um, but something I've been wondering... But, but, but that's different from Parliament voting to have an election, which happened a bit, you know, Absolutely. some days yes. before. And of course, that's when MPs started and campaigning. That's, yes. that's the difficulty with the rules that they say it starts at the formal point, but actually everyone's campaigning as soon as the votes happen. And I, I wonder if there's a question where a lot of what we're seeing this week, be that uh, candidates of various parties having all sorts of things unearthed about them because vetting procedures have been quite light, these sorts of uh, big decisions that are having to be made about what can be published when. How much do you think that that is a factor of the fact that this is a, a relatively snap election? We've thought for a long time an election might be coming, then it looked like perhaps it wasn't as In imminent. In fact, the Prime Minister was calling for an election, but uh, yeah. <laughs> mysteriously could not, could not get one. Well, uh, still saying he didn't want one. It, yes. <laughs> um, but then suddenly, actually, in the last couple of weeks, everything's changed and we are having an election. And how how much is it a case that things are actually having to be rushed? There's very little time available and that really affects the tone of what's happening in this first week. So I think the the point about publications of um, costings of opposition policies, that's been a factor in other elections recently and it, it just reflects the change from the, the fact that now Parliament is voting for uh, an election under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, though I've mentioned it, um, <laughs> uh, rather than a government just... Uh, being able to call an election, that was would then um, be mean, mean there was a much faster turnaround into Parliament than going into uh, campaign mode. And so just just to, just to be crystal clear about this this uh, row with the Cabinet Secretary this week, because it did hit the front pages of all kinds of papers, and it sounds very technical, but it, uh, Labour got off on a very uh, quick footing uh, uh, about it. Is it fair to say that he um, was perhaps too cautious and that there were precedents for the government publishing, using civil service uh, to cost up what the opposition was doing and publishing that up to that point, but he was acting within the spirit of, of rules about protecting the impartiality of the civil service? I think... Mark Sedwell, the Cabinet Secretary, is acutely conscious of uh, accusations that have been made recently about politicisation of the civil service. He is being uber cautious here because he wants to protect the impartiality and not lay the civil service this open to any accusation that it might be politically partial. And we've also seen this week him say that the OBR couldn't publish an updated uh, forecast. The OBR is the... The Office of Bud uh, Budget Responsibility would normally, twice a year, publish its forecast for the public finances and they were due to do that and he stopped them doing that as well. And that presumably would have been uh, a less good thing for the government to come out because those uh, the, the outlook for public finances would presumably be less good than the last time the OBR did that in March. So the swings and roundabouts is stuff that's been bad for the government. The government mm. was cross when he said that they couldn't publish opposition uh, policy costings, but presumably uh, heaved a sigh of relief when he said actually the OBR can't publish their up. And the, the OBR one's really interesting because that date was set when we knew there was going to be an election, right? So they uh, it was relatively last minute when they suddenly changed the plan and said we're not going 
to publish this anymore. And it's also different because they are supposed to be an independent body. So Mark Sedwell getting involved in that as something that was already pre-planned and is part of an in, you know supposedly independent public body, it's not about talking to civil servants in another part of the Whitehall Forest, maybe shows that that was a reaction to just how contentious his decision on the labour costings were that he thought, I actually need to stretch a bit further and make a mark on the OBR because otherwise, as Hannah said, we're kind of exposed here around in civil service. That's a really good point. Even in this first week of the election, we're seeing the information and the right to release information is becoming a key bit of the battleground. Yeah, Alice, is this something you've been looking at? And there's this Russian report on on, uh, Russian interference that the government withheld. Yes, absolutely. What about that? The third publishing row of the week. So the Intelligence and Security Committee in Parliament, which is chaired by Dominic Grieve, a critic of the Prime Minister in all sorts of ways, had written this report looking at potential meddling in elections. Um, now, quite uniquely, the the ISC, this committee, needs to have its reports cleared by the Prime Minister before they can be published because of their very sensitive nature, and that permission was not granted. So there's been this huge row about this this week. And is the government saying this is because they're super sensitive? Exactly, and I think, again, you're looking, giving the timings of this right before an election, of course, the argument from people like Dominic Grieve is that given that this report is about meddling in elections, it's important that people understand what's going on before And, and an whether this election is being meddled with. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yes. Um, that's, I suppose, in this sense, it's also a bit of a broader battle that we've seen between Parliament and government in the last couple of years about um, government giving information to Parliament, Parliament actually demanding that information. So I think this is a, a much broader question. And this is one that isn't settled, is it? I mean, we're going to see this, I think, even after you know the next Parliament resumes about who's got the right. Hannah, what do you feel on this one? Is Who's right on this? Is it super sensitive? Should come out or shouldn't we know who's you know whether the Russians are capable of meddling in this election? My understanding is there are lots of processes that have to be gone through to make sure that what's in these reports can be released but that these processes are actually all complete and all that was remaining to do was for a formal government sign-off. I think the this again points to a long-standing issue about government allowing the ISC to release its reports and I think it points to a, a big question that um, we all ought to be thinking about and how adequate parliamentary scrutiny of intelligence can be if the committee can't put out a report that it's produced uh, at a time when it wants because it thinks it's important to release that information. Have we really got a proper system of parliamentary scrutiny of intelligence or actually is it just a fig leaf and controlled by the government, controlled by the intelligence services? On a much broader point around publication reports, I mean, I know this is a kind of specific committee, but government also has a habit of just holding on to reports and publishing them at the moment where it's likely to cause them the least trouble. I mean, that's why... In fact, have... this has traditionally been one of the things that's, you know, it's a benefit of being in government, if you like. You can put out this stuff when, taking when out it suits you. Exactly. Yes. Yes. The end of a parliament... Where <laughs> go, go on, just tell everyone what taking out the trash day so this is. this is the yeah. end of a parliament where the government will lay before parliament a whole host of reports that it's been sitting on for however long and dumps them there in the hope that none of them get the same kind of level of media pickup, perhaps, that they would if they were published on a rainy Tuesday when nothing else was happening. So we've seen that. We were doing a piece of work previously around immigration and there was the um, the inspectorate who looks at how the government's delivering a load of its immigration issues published seven reports or something like seven on the same day because the government had kept hold of them all and just put them all out in one big lump uh, to try and kind of bury some of the bad news. So it is a long-standing habit, mm. isn't it? Mm. But one, that, well, a controversial one, as you say, anyway, yes. not to be confused with the literal take-out-the-trash-day that the IFG finance director is telling us all to turn up in jeans and clear up our desks before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>
which we are all going to do. We'll return to some of these subjects in the coming weeks, and particularly that one that Hannah was referring to about whether Parliament really can uh, look properly at intelligence or whether it's always the other side of a glass wall, if you like. But for now, let's just take a deeper look at an election where we do know the result. Lindsay Hoyle has been elected by MPs to succeed John Burko as the Speaker of the House of Commons. It's a role which, as Burko has shown, can play a massively influential part in shaping the tone of Parliament and even the direction of government itself. Alice, you've just published a paper setting out the challenges for the new Speaker. Yes, I think the new Speaker, so Lindsay Hoyle, is the 158th Speaker of the House of Commons, and he faces really quite a unique set of challenges. So... The first thing is these procedural issues, which have become huge under John Burko. There is some uncertainty about how specific House of Commons procedures now work, given that precedent set by Burko means they don't actually seem to match up with what's written in the parliamentary rules. What kind of things are these? So two of the big ones are um, around, firstly, business motions, uh, which essentially set out how things will unfold in the Commons. Now, these are usually understood to be voted on by MPs forthwith, and that's parliamentary speak for without amendment and without debate. So this is something that's traditionally been under the government's control, and it brings a business motion, and it says this is how we're going to bring stuff to the House of Commons and how it's going to vote on it. And lots of things are done forthwith. That's a really important word. It sounds very archaic, but it just means you're not going to get to debate this you're not going to get to amend it. You just have to have a vote on you it. You have to do it right now. And then what did Burko do to this? So Burko allowed an amendment on one of these business motions, which is completely unprecedented. And as Hannah mentions, that then creates much bigger questions about actually wherever the word forthwith crops up in the parliamentary rules, does this mean that debate and amendment will suddenly be allowed or doesn't it? So there is this kind of specific uncertainty. When was the Burko, when did Burko first allow that? Was that to do, that was... That was at the heart the... of Brexit. You, you tell yeah, us, I think January. it was January 2018, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it was to do with the government having pulled its meaningful vote. Is that right? That was the first supposed to happen? That's in... right. I mean, I, th- I think the Speaker's uh, argument at the time was the government had played slightly fast and loose uh, with procedures in the way it had brought its business motion forward and therefore he was trying to redress the balance in allowing that amendment. All right, that's why forthwith really matters. Thanks, everyone. You're spoiling our IFG Christmas quiz. Exactly the kind of thing I'm going to ask. <laughs> um, Alice, you know, what else um, matters about the new speaker? What are the other key judgments he's going to have to make? Well, there's going to be a whole range of things um, in the chamber and outside it. So we've already seen that the new speaker has given an interview where he's been asked about some of these specific procedural considerations. Um, he suggested that he would not have allowed that forthwith motion we've just discussed to be amended. Um, but he's really stressed as well that he actually wants to see Parliament try and clarify its rules, essentially so that I think the Speaker is not being put in this kind of position again. Now, the big question, of course, is what the Parliament that the Speaker faces will look like after And whether it December agrees with that at all. And whether it agrees with that. I mean, Hannah, you've written about that this week and you've talked about how a majority government may also want to see some kind of rules clarified. The first point is here, I think, you know, it's wishful thinking, really, to think you can ever clarify the rules to such an extent that the Speaker won't be brought into controversy. And that, 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 that has to be right. Especially yeah. if you're in a minority government situation. This is the whole point of having a Speaker, is you have to have someone who can interpret the rules. There are lots of rules, there are lots of precedents, there are lots of previous things Speakers have decided. You've got to have someone who can pull that all together, look at it through a political lens, understanding where the different parties and factions are, and decide what should happen. This, and Lizzie Hall's never going to be able to get away from that. And, 
And what about this point that Alice has just made? Is Parliament actually going to want this? Because it's fine to say, I'm going to be very different from John Burko, but John Burko increased the powers of Parliament. Exactly. Effect- effectively, is Parliament really going to want the, uh, the Speaker to give, give those back to the government? Exactly. And I think it's an interesting statistic that actually two-thirds of MPs have never had a different speaker to John Burko of the ones who have just been leaving Parliament. And so they've never been in a situation where there's a majority government and they can't do anything they want to in Parliament. And actually, I think that they, although you can technically change the rules, the culture of Parliament has changed. And people expect to be able to question ministers. They expect to be able to bring urgent questions. They expect to be able to have emergency debates. They're not going to want to close down all those options. I think that's right. And I think one of the really sort of striking things is that throughout this whole speaker campaign, we've seen all the different candidates being more or less thinly veiled in their criticism of John Burko at times. But actually, not not very veiled. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But something I think that was quite clear across pretty much all of the candidates was very much this sense that actually they welcomed the extent to which John Burko has increased the rights of Parliament and particularly the rights of backbenchers through things like urgent questions, as Hannah has mentioned. And it was quite notable on Monday night, just before Lindsay Hoyle was dragged to the chair. To this take is, this up is a famous role. traditional ceremony. Yes, uh, because yeah. historically the role of Speaker has uh, resulted in, I think, seven people losing their heads. So, <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. Uh, someone else was killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Um, so, you know, they, they are dragged to the chair. It's, <laughs> like I say, my husband has given up hope. <laughs> um, but when he, he gave this sort of short little acceptance speech, if you like, and something he really emphasised there was actually he believes in the rights of backbenchers to hold ministers to account. So I think, as Hannah says, there is a, a bit of a cultural change that's happened in the Commons, and it might be quite difficult for Lindsay Hoyle to deviate from that. And that cultural change has come at the same time as the rise of social media, and actually MPs are used to be able to have their time in, in the chamber now where they stand up, they ask a question, their office clips that and puts it out on Twitter, and, and they get nice coverage from that. And at the moment, they can reliably think that if they go to the chamber for a statement or for some questions, that they will get that opportunity. If that starts to go away, they're not going to be happy. Hannah, I'm not, I'm not asking you to relive your whole past as a clerk of the House of Commons, <laughs> but, but what, what is it that clerks want from the Speaker? I think they want someone who can understand the rules and the procedures, but can also, as I say, see them through that political lens. They need someone who is there to interpret um, all all those things to bring them together and come to a decision. The clerks can give the technical advice. There also may be legal advice. And I think um, that's something that the the new speaker has has referred to seeing as important. Um, But you've got to have someone who can make the decision. And that's, at the end of the day, what the clerks want. Just stick on that for a second. legal advice. How much is this becoming important in Parliament? We think of it as, you know, this antique theatre, all these costumes and shouting and everything. But how much is kind of essential legal advice on interpreting these rules really coming into play? It's always been a factor. Whenever a piece of legislation is about to be uh, introduced into the House of Commons, there are discussions between clerks and between government lawyers about what is the scope of this legislation? What amendments could you have to it? And that's always been the case. The Speaker has to balance the advice he gets from lawyers, the advice he gets from clerks. That's nothing new. He also doesn't have to campaign during the general election, which I'm sure will be a huge bonus of being elected. That is a real Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> We're big believers in hard data at the Institute for Government. No one does it better than our information guru, Gavin Freegard. Gavin, 
Nice to have you here again. Thank you very much. He's here to dazzle us with data in a new regular item we're calling, what else, Speed Data with Gavin Freegard. <laughs> Gavin, what's caught your eye this week? Well, I think the big number this week is 72, or by the time we go out, I think I'll have to record a number of higher numbers because it's changing all the time. And that's the number of MPs that have said they're not going to fight this next election. What does that tell us about? Is that unusual? So if you look at the sort of 72, the average between 1979 and 2015 was actually more like 91. So it's actually slightly lower. So this this is fascinating. So despite all the headlines we've had about the number of MPs and the big characters standing down, actually it's uh, proportionally less than in the past. Although, of course, the difference this time is that it's only been a two-year parliament. um, And I think that's why it's surprising that so many people... And it's also about who's standing down, not numbers per se. Precisely. So if you look at the Conservative women who are standing down, for example, they tend to be younger. They've not been in Parliament for as long, so they're actually sort of less experienced. People who might you, ex- you might expect to go on to sort of longer parliamentary careers are actually stepping down. Earlier. And if we wanted to equalise the numbers of men and women in Parliament, then presumably you'd need a disproportionate number of men standing down rather than women. That's right. And we've at, at the moment it's about um, a third of those standing down are women, and two thirds of those standing down are men, which is roughly in line with the current composition of the House. And a lot of the Conservatives who are standing down are quite senior, aren't they? Yes, that's right. Of the 31 Conservatives who've so far announced they're going, more than 20 of them have served as ministers, some of them quite senior, like David Liddington. And if you look at the eight independent Conservatives, all of them, um, such as Amber Rudd, for instance, um, and Philip Hammond, served as quite senior ministers as well. So that's a, a lot of front bench experience the Conservatives are losing. OK, well, that's just the data for this week. Can't wait till next. Now let's take a look at this week's big idea. It's now two decades since the new Labour government's devolution settlement. That was the creation of the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly and the power-sharing agreement in Northern Ireland. So it's a very good time to take stock and assess whether that system of devolved government is really working. Questions which, like so much else, have been brought into sharp focus by Brexit. This week we're joined by Jess Sargent, one of our researchers and co-author of a recent report looking at the effect of no-deal Brexit on the union. Jess, welcome. Thank you. Just really simple question. Devolution, is it working? I mean, it's a very simple question, but there's not necessarily a very simple answer um, to that. (laughs) There's lots of different ways that you could try and measure the success of devolution. Um, So, for example, you might want to look at trust in the institutions, whether the Scottish and Welsh um, parliaments and assemblies and the Northern Ireland Assembly are more trusted than Westminster institutions. And what what does that show? So there is some evidence that there is um, more trust in uh, the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament than in the UK Parliament in, in Scotland and Wales. The picture in Northern Ireland is a little bit more complicated a trust has declined over recent years, which is um, obviously explained by the fact that there isn't a functioning um, assembly at the moment, um, and I think that has obviously affected opinions. Well, it was set up in a rather different way. It was set up explicitly to address the Good Friday Agreement and, and, and the, the need for power sharing between those communities. Yeah, absolutely, and there's very different devolution stories in each different part of the UK. And while I think uh, the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly are very firmly established and people can't imagine anything different um, to, that, to those arrangements, in Northern Ireland... Um, Devolution is kind of more precarious, obviously. It's it's people's preferred option. The majority of people in Northern Ireland do want devolved government, um, but there's obviously been difficulties keeping keeping that intact. And, and the, the, Welsh were, the Welsh were lukewarm at best on the idea of an assembly at first, is that right? Really yeah. lukewarm, wasn't it? It was 50.3% in favour when there was a referendum about whether to have a devolved government. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen support for the, uh, 
the Welsh Assembly grow since then. So that's one perhaps uh, indicator that it has been successful in Wales. OK, so that's public trust, if you like. It's mm-hmm. better, better than it was, and as you say, better than uh, perhaps the trust in, in the English government is. What about how the governments are actually working and managing to run the things that they're allowed to run? Yeah, so it's very difficult to kind of try and compare things like public services or economic performance um, in each of each of the parts of the UK. I think because the governments have taken very different approaches to public services. Um, in Scotland, there's a big kind of focus on early intervention and things like that. And so a lot of the metrics we might use to measure success in England, people don't think they're appropriate to measure success um, in Scotland and Wales. And I think that is perhaps something that as devolution has become more established that we might want to start looking at to thinking about um, how is the how can the performance been compared there's also lots of different factors as different uh, demographics in Scotland and Wales um, and England and there's also questions about kind of funding you can't just assess these things on devolution so this is what there. the elected governments and these are elected yeah. governments we would say is uh, look we're not being given enough money by Westminster and uh, and we, we don't have um, we don't have the freedom or the money to mm-hmm. to make the real changes that we'd want to make yeah absolutely I think that is something that that they would say and so perhaps there needs to be kind of more looking at how we how we can obsess, um, assess it objectively. And that's really interesting because actually it's quite good that they do things differently, right? So this is the, this idea is the whole of point devolution of devolution. Of, exactly. It's and a laboratory also, of, 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 of government. Exactly, right. a policy laboratory where you can try out different things and there have been successes with that, haven't there? There's the plastic smoking bags. ban mm-hmm. and plastic bags. That was all rolled out in one part of the UK. Called Wales. Called Wales. <laughs> my favourite part of the UK, if we have to pick them. Um, Joe, we, and... have, we have to not reveal the, the disproportionate uh, Welsh representation in the IFG. <laughs> but it does show you know, that you can try different things out that maybe would not have got traction on a national level, but it shows the success and the benefits of it, and that can then roll out much more broadly. But you're right, in the, the way that things are measured differently, is a problem because then it's harder to compare and contrast the different policy approaches. And are are we being too kind uh, because of that uh, and not looking at how bad the public services in some parts of the devolved governments have been? Now, again, you know, the devolved governments might say we don't have enough money and we don't have enough freedom to do something about this. But the fact is that school and health results in parts of of Wales and, and Scotland, Northern Ireland over this period have not come up always to English standards. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, it's just as there's positive benefits of the the policy laboratory, I think there are different parts of the UK that say there's definitely negative uh, connotations to having a, a policy laboratory, if you like. But this isn't necessarily a, fa- a fault of devolution. It may be a fault mm. of, of those governments, or yeah. as they would say, of of their lack of powers. Where does devolution go from here, Jess? I think that's that's a big question going forward. Obviously, Brexit has put a big strain um, on the relationships between. Um, Just spell out why that is. Um, I think fundamentally, it's because the UK government is pursuing a policy that's very strongly opposed um, by the, both the Scottish and, and the Welsh governments. Obviously, there's no government at the moment in Northern Ireland, but the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain. And I think throughout this process, there's a feeling amongst the Scottish and Welsh governments that the UK government has pressed ahead with this policy without really considering uh, their views or listening to what they would propose as their ideal form of Brexit. Um, and so and, and really... while, while Wales did vote for leave, we've had two Absolutely. Welsh first ministers, haven't we, uh, on IFG platforms say mm-hmm. they think that Wales would now vote for Remain. Yeah, exactly. And the, the Brexit vote is so fundamental for devolution because if you look at actually how devolution, particularly in Scotland and Wales, took place, it was Tony Blair, the Labour government, said, OK, national assemblies and parliament, you can have power in these areas and you can have con- control, complete control, but they are 
almost entirely areas in which the EU has competence. So there was a kind of framework set about how far each of the nations could diverge. And when you remove that EU framework, all of a sudden the kind of constraints on devolution are also removed. So there are big questions about how you continue to make the UK work without this EU framework. devolution really assumed that the UK was part of the European Union. It was a fundamental basis, basically. And and the UK tries to do trade deals. Um, What happens to environment and agriculture, Mm -hmm. which are supposed to be under the control of these devolved governments? And it would require a completely different way of working. You know, Westminster's used to matters either being reserved or devolved. Here they've got areas that um, are uh, devolved, but they're going to need these kind of common frameworks. And that will require genuine joint working, which Westminster and the and the devolved administrations haven't really done before. And Brexit has sort of destroyed a bit of the trust, hasn't it? Because there was Absolutely. normally this assumption, even in the Scotland Act, that Westminster won't legislate to do things when it doesn't have consent from mm-hmm. the devolved legislatures. And on Brexit, they haven't given consent and Westminster's gone ahead. And that's really trouble, troubling people, I think. So yeah, are we on a conveyor way. belt to the UK breaking up? I mean, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, to be honest, it looks like a, a second Scottish independence referendum is likely at some point. Um, it's just a question of when. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon's preferred timetable is to hold one next year. Um, it will really depend on the result of this election as to whether that might be possible. I mean, no party has said that they'll devolve um, the power to hold this referendum immediately. Um, the Labour Party have said that they'd wait at least a couple of years and the Conservative Party have said that they won't grant that power. So we, d- we don't know where this is going, but it is very obviously in play during this general election. Holly Grender has spent nearly three decades working behind the scenes at the Liberal Democrats, advising leaders, working in government and playing a leading role on successive general election campaigns. And now she's back, working closely with Joe Swinson, the Lib Dem leader, and taking the party's stop Brexit message right across the country. She spoke to our colleague Sam McCrory. You've been around the Lib Dems for a long time now, working for a number of leaders in government, out of government. Um, Tell us about your role now. So right now I'm advising Jo Swinson. I was her interim chief of staff straight after she got elected and helped her build up her core team. Uh, As you can imagine, she has been running at approximately 200 miles an hour ever since she got elected as leader. But what an amazing and meteoric uh, first few months she's had. Can you give us a sense of Lib Dem HQ during an election campaign? Yeah, it's suddenly the noise levels have absolutely rocketed up. We think, I think we're kind of managing to get in over 100 people and there's a satellite office elsewhere. And, uh, you know, kind of people are absolutely pouring in some volunteers, you know, some uh, additional part-time contracts. And, of course, the core staff who've been fighting the good fight for a long time. There's a lot of talk about how the other main parties have changed over the course of the parliament. But how have the Lib Dems changed since the days of Ashdown, Kennedy and Clegg? Well, I mean, obviously, we've had turbulent times. You know, we went into government. We got a right royal kicking for having gone into government and being the minority partner. And we know from all the studies and all the great work that you guys do that when you're a minority partner in a government, you sometimes get a big old kicking. But actually... um, it's it's still at its core got you know kind of very similar values i think what's different this time is take a look just take a look at the optics look at joe look at boris johnson and look at jeremy corbyn the optics are so different for our party right now you know we've got a fresh young working mum who's leading our party 
versus, you know, kind of a very, very strong sense of two older parties. You're also a peer, and we talked a lot about the role of the Commons in the last Parliament. But the House of Lords played a big part in some of the battles over Brexit. Has the atmosphere been notably different? Yeah, um, so always t everyone talks about, uh, you know, a certain level of politeness in the Lords, and it's true, but with a kind of underlying, you know, kind of octogenarian chuntering at the same time. But I think, you know, we, we have had to be in almost, you know, kind of combat. And it's amazing those moments when you're voting and it's two o'clock in the morning and you look round and there is Michael Heseltine absolutely determined to stay and vote overnight in order to get through, you know, a change in the law that compels the government to request an extension rather than us crash out. And as a Lib Dem, you want an elected House of Lords. So was it right for the unelected second chamber to block Brexit? Well, um, it's, it's, you know, there are some arguments about precedent, but they had no mandate. You know, 2017, Theresa May went to the country, asked for a mandate, and the country gave her none. And on that basis, I think the peers can be very robust in terms of their views. Now, there's something rather glorious. If you profoundly believe in an elected House of Lords, as I do, and the government threatens that if you vote against them, they'll reform it, I'm quite able to say, go ahead, make my day. Because they failed when we were trying to do it together in a coalition. But one of the legacies of that coalition, which was a Lib Dem innovation, was the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. And that's been given a lot of the blame for the Brexit deadlock that we've been in. Was it a mistake, do you think? Absolutely not. I think that Boris Johnson would have run fast and loose with the country had we had anything else. I think it has proved its worth and test of time. Now, I'll be the first to admit that we were the hugely imaginative party that introduced a one-line bill to, in a sense, get us out of the deadlock and towards a general election, partly because we did all the analysis and we believed, having attempted 17 times to secure a people's vote, that it was not going to be secured in the current parliament. And therefore, the only options that lay ahead of us were a general election or a Brexit and most likely a hard Brexit or possibly crashing out. And we thought the, you know, kind of there was, it left us with limited options. But the FTPA was brought in for four purposes of coalition government. These were unintended consequences, weren't they? Well, I think one of the unintended consequences was allowing the Prime Minister to set the date. And I think that, that again, was, uh, you know, kind of slightly... Uh, would have allowed Boris Johnson to play fast and loose, and he's already proved that he's prepared to play fast and loose by, you know, t lying to the Queen and proroguing a Parliament when all he needs is four days, and instead he took weeks. Looking back at the coalition, ahead of the 2015 election, you gave an interview defending the Lib Dems' decision to go into power with the Conservatives. You talked about how the party could pull the levers of power, could deliver things. So why are the Lib Dems so averse to coalition these days? Well, um, take a look at who's leading the two parties. I mean, it makes it really, really easy and straightforward. We are a party of Remain. We are utterly convinced that Labour is a party of Brexit because of who leads. And it's fairly obvious that Boris Johnson wants to drive us towards either a hard Brexit or crashing out. Uh, that makes it very, very clear cut. Do we work with others? Well, we've just made an announcement that we have worked with Plaid Cymru and with the Greens, where people are going to stand aside 
uh, to give a clear run to whoever is the strongest remain candidate in a particular constituency. So I think we demonstrate that we have we have potential to work with others. However, I think you have rightly identified that coalition is uh, not a comfortable word uh, in the Lib Dem legacy. And you mentioned your your party's discomfort with the current leadership of the Conservatives and Labour. Is that what would need to change to reopen this coalition question? Well, it's pretty pointless getting into that. You know, if the Labour Party leadership was going to change, it would have changed last uh, at their last party conference. If they were going to change their position on Brexit, they would have done it at the last party conference, but they fudged it again. So the people who believe that the Labour Party at some moment will miraculously reinvent itself um, into a party of Remain, I really genuinely believe are deluding themselves. And the Tom Watson departure is another compelling reason why they should decide that it's time to move on from Labour. Do you think Brexit will bring about a realignment of the parties? Or is this just a temporary thing that's happening at the moment? I think that's a really interesting question. I think there are profound sh- uh, shifts going on, tectonic plates moving. I think um, I think it's astounding. Some of our own internal studies and research suggest that if you're an 18 to 25-year-old now, you define yourself as a remainer, uh, sometimes above gender, religion, race, sexual, sexual orientation. Uh, pretty extraordinary, but, you know, kind of I have young, young friends who literally, when they start dating, say, uh, and to test out um, somebody that they might go out with, are you a Remainer or a Brexiteer? So people are very much, and especially a younger generation, are defining themselves in that way. And I think it is about the kind of things that we've been talking about, about in or out. And I think in the future that people will see themselves as either in and part of a community and wanting to embrace all communities or wanting to be a part. And I know precisely where the Liberal Democrats fit within that and have for many, many years. It's not as if we've ever changed our view or position on that. The Lib Dems for a long time have wanted to change the electoral system. Do you see any greater prospect of that happening now? Well, I I think everyone can see that politics is broken and that would be part of it. Joe is going for the very top job for Prime Minister and, you know, if we in that event got a majority, of course, you you will not be astonished to discover, and I don't think this is a spoiler, that in our manifesto, a change in the voting system uh, would be one of our policies. I think that we do need to do something about that because I think people do feel unrepresented. I think they feel they don't have a voice. And I think uh, PR is the logical way of doing it. The ridiculous arguments about it, against it, particularly from Conservatives who believe that stability will be provided by first-past-the-post. Well, recent history suggests that they're out with the fairies when it comes to that. And we'll definitely be returning to the question of electoral reform in the future. OK, one final question to the panel before we go. What can we expect next week? Hannah. I think the parties will be finalising their uh, selection processes. Um, Both Conservative and Labour still have people still to select and we'll see who's going to secure those coveted safe seats for this election. Great. 
Game of Thrones in a way. Joe, what do you reckon? So next week might be the week we start to see the detail in manifesto form of what the parties are pledging. We Uh, might not get the manifestos. We might in some cases. We might not. Um, I think we might, we might not is probably quite a good prediction for lots of things (laughs) in the general election. Um, But um, uh, obviously last election in 2017, uh, the Conservative manifesto and their policy around social care, which was not what everyone was expecting, suddenly became the very big thing. Great. And I would agree with that. I think my slightly cheating prediction would be to predict the unpredictable. Whenever you have an election campaign, you're giving over control to the electorate. You never know quite what's going to happen. And that's what we've already seen this week. Maybe the one thing you can guarantee, though, is there will be some uncomfortable TV or radio interviews for prospective candidates. (laughs) That used to be a safe prediction. Well, that's exactly what the party headquarters are trying to control and prevent (laughs) happening. We'll see. That's it this week from me, Bronwyn Maddox, an inside briefing with the Institute for Government. You can get the show every Friday afternoon on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and all your favourite podcast platforms. It's the perfect start to the weekend. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about everything we've discussed today and much more if you follow us on Twitter or visit our website. And please do get in touch with any questions on government, on politics, on parliament, on policies, on Gavin's collection of graphs. We're here to provide the answers. See you next week when we return for the next episode of Inside Briefing. 